So Matt, I think that we should probably thank our listeners. I think that if they've if they've stuck with us through this many episodes, uh, they deserve our thanks for sure. I mean, it's not the quantity of episodes that they've stuck with us. It's the quality of the episodes that they've stuck with us. Yeah, that's true. That's 100% true. We actually have quite a few new listeners uh, because of the Thanksgiving uh, newsletter that went out. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize Dave was going to mention the podcast in our newsletter that goes out to everyone who's subscribed over the last 12 years of 1Password. And we noticed our listeners like spike to the point... I'm, I'm I'm breaking up just just you know feeling the the emotions over this. <laughs> uh, we were in the top forty technology podcasts of I I don't know how many times Apple you know polls them, but yeah, we we were top forty in iTunes uh, under technology, which blows my mind. Yeah, that feels like a glitch. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. So uh, let's jump into Watchtower Weekly. We got a we got a couple articles here. Should we do them both, or, or just uh, we'll just start with? Uh... Yeah, one's big and one's interesting. So let's go. Yeah. At the time we're recording this, this happened uh, last week. Marriott revealed that its Starwood guest reservation database has been subject to unauthorized access since 2014. <laughs> These. Oh, these are insane. Whenever it's like, yes, uh, for the past eight years, we've had just a horrible leak that's just leaking things out and it's, you know, hasn't gone noticed till now. It covers five years, 500 million guests. I mean, Starwood is a huge, huge brand. There's a good chance that if you've stayed at a hotel in the last five years that you could potentially be included in this. I was trying to think of, of the ones that I've stayed in over the last five years and I was like, yep, Marriott. Yeah, Starwood. Oh, yeah. Aloft, Element. Four points. Oh my gosh, that's right. Like all of them, I feel. <laughs> the interesting thing here is that this is like a data breach, not so much a password breach. You know, we got people's names, mailing addresses, phone numbers, passport number, which I don't, you know, that's not that great. I never understand why hotels ask for that data. I don't know either. And I, and I wonder whether we're going to start seeing as, as more of these happen. People asking for less information rather than more. They really should. I mean, if you look at if you look at everything that's here, a lot of it is the type of information that someone could use to social engineer a hack anywhere really it's like well listen i've got i've i've given you my name my address my phone number my passport number my date of birth what like what else do you need for me to unlock this account for me please and like almost any customer support person is going to fold under under that kind of questioning and be like no you're right you're probably who you say you are here's here's a password reset link that i will send to this email address that you've given me that is brand new the interesting thing as well is that, you know, payment numbers were encrypted, but they also might have stolen the information like required to decrypt them. Storing the encrypted data in the same place as the keys seems pretty bad. Yeah, it's like leaving the key in the lock of your door. It's like, ah, I locked the door. I don't understand what the, how they got in. This is one of those things where sort of the result for a customer is to probably sign up for one of those those data monitoring services. Uh, and happily, Marriott is offering that um, through this service called Web Watcher. So it's it's nice that they're offering this one year of, of service, but honestly, it's the kind of service that people should just have anyway, I think. All right, Matt, well, why don't we, why don't we talk about Tesla a little bit? Uh, Vice.com had an article up, uh, customer complains about Tesla forums. Tesla accidentally gives him control over them. <laughs> this is... Some incredible customer support. It's like, oh, oh, you have a problem with our forums? Well, here's the keys to those to that kingdom. Go, go right ahead. It's 
very odd that they have the power to do this. Right. The learnings to take from this is that your customer service people should not be able to give someone access to anything back of house. Right. Absolutely. The customer was inadvertently granted a higher level of permissions than he should have had to the Tesla forum. A Tesla spokesperson told Motherboard in an email on Monday, we revoked the access as soon as it was reported and made other changes to adjust privileges according following a full audit. Yeah, it feels like a little bit of cowboy coding on their end, right? It's just like, ah, we got, we need some forums, you know, here, intern Joe, go set up some forums for us. And uh, you just give access to whomever you need to. It'll be fine. What I enjoy about this as well is they told him to report the bug via their bug bounty program, even though it's it's not really a bug so much like someone did it. Right. Yeah. Dan claims uh, he believes he found Elon Musk's own account who last logged in some three and a half years ago. Yeah, well, Matt, what do you say? Should we uh, should we bring a guest in here today? Yeah, we've got a great guest today. Um, he has written one of my favorite books uh, on on security that kind of tells the narrative of how uh, cyber attacks happen. So, uh, yeah, we have uh, Charles Arthur on the call today, the uh, author of Cyber Wars: uh, Hacks That Shocked Business. Uh, so. Charles, can you tell me a bit about your background and and what led to your book? Sure. So my background is I've been a journalist writing about technology for 13 years or so. Uh, I mean, I did did an electronic engineering degree um, and came out. And uh, after a couple of years, I got into journalism, uh, working for um, one of the trade periodicals uh, called Computer Weekly, uh, which in those days used to still be actually on paper. Um, and that was where I first uh, came across hackers and hacking and the whole sort of uh, space that I was in. I mean, that was a uh, Computer Weekly was very much a sort of uh, enterprise business focused sort of uh, publication. Um, but hacking was one of those things because PCs started to come along and uh, the whole idea that you could start to use these to, uh, to break into systems um, started to occupy the fronts of people's minds. And as time has gone along, I, I've been there. I was at a magazine called Business. I uh, went from there to uh, New Scientist magazine, uh, where, again, I was uh, writing about hackers, uh, encountering them, as well as all the other technology topics I did. Uh, From there, I went to the independent newspaper, where I uh, became technology editor. And uh, after that, I was uh, at The Guardian from 2005 until 2014, uh, again, as a technology editor, and uh, did a lot of writing about hackers and hacking there. So uh, it's something which has just come along... uh, for you know, for years and years, for all the decades that I've been working in this space, um, as much as anything, because hacking doesn't go away. There's just you know more and more avenues to do it. Uh, the internet, particularly, has created all sorts of new ways for people to uh, to get at each other's machines. Uh, the Internet of Things has created uh, totally new targets to hit, which don't even have to have a person behind them, and uh, the consequences as well can be uh, very severe. And the way that this book came about was, uh, in fact, that uh, I wrote a book back in 2011 called Digital Wars, which is about Apple, Google, and Microsoft and about their business interactions. Uh, After the PC wars were over, sort of the end of the 1990s, uh, Apple then got into digital music with the iPod, uh, Google got into search and displaced Microsoft, and uh, then, of course, they all got into the smartphone space and the tablet space. Uh, So it was all about that. That was with a publisher called Kogan Page, and uh, they came to me 
back in 2017 and said, listen, we've got an idea for a book uh, about hacking. Um, this is sort of broadly how we sort of think it might work. Can you, could you think of some, some chapters that you know, might be worth writing about, uh, hacking incidents that are interesting, that will be relevant, that we could sort of draw lessons from? And I said, sure. And I was able to, to be honest, I was able to come up with the, uh, the chapter list in uh, about half an hour because you know, the high profile hacks, the ones that really have big lessons for people aren't that hard to think of. Um, and as much as anything, uh, the business lessons, even if the hacks are in the past. So the, the oldest hack in this is from 2005, but the business lessons tend to remain the same. Uh, and really the, uh, the story that emerges from each of the different chapters is each is a, is a different sort of uh, attack, is, is a different sort of failing uh, really on the, on the part of the people who are attacked, uh, is that you need robust business systems. You need actually to expect that you're going to be hacked rather than expect that you won't. So, Charles, have you done any hacking yourself, even from a from an academic point of view, while working on this book? Not while working on this book. A few years ago, I did go to a, sort of a hacking seminar, uh, which was taught by a security company. And they were showing, for example, things like how easy or difficult it can be to hack into systems. And one of the one of the ones that really um, made an impression on me was they were demonstrating how someone who had FTP access only to upload a file if there was a particular flaw, you know, there was a known flaw in FTP at one time, uh, which would allow you to break into the system and effectively get administrative rights so that you could not only upload, you could uh, traverse the directories and look around all the other files belonging to all the other users uh, in the system. You could download those files. You could uh, possibly change them. And most of all, none of this would show up in the logs. And you say, why wouldn't it show up in the logs? You're going around, you know, looking at all these files and things. And the reason was because it's a bug, because it's something that the, the log system is not expecting to have happened. That you know, you're a user who's only got enough FTP upload uh, access. It, because it doesn't look for that, it doesn't register it. And so it's entirely possible that a hacker can break into a system, do all sorts of things, and it won't show up in the logs. And I, that was uh, that for me was a really big lesson uh, in how hacking goes against your expectations. You think that the computer is all seeing, but actually it's full of flaws. And when there's a flaw in the code, then it can be exploited ruthlessly. And you might not know that it's happened. And the fact of code having flaws uh, comes up again and again. Um, there have been examples where there's 20-year-old code, open source code, which you know everyone is meant to be looking at and which is meant to be free of bugs because many eyes make bugs shallow. And actually, that flaw has been in there for, for decades. Um, so knowing that, knowing the fact that the logs might not pick it up, that gives you an insight into how powerful yeah, that's, hacking can uh, be. That's fascinating. So in the book, you start with the, the Sony hack. And what amazes me with that is the sheer scale of it. Do you think huge companies like Sony are almost comfortable or complacent in some areas of security? Well, the Sony Pictures hack uh, back in 2014, it happened just before Thanksgiving uh, in the States uh, of 2014. That was a state-sponsored hack. That was North Korea, which was uh, really not very pleased at the idea that Sony Pictures was going to be putting out a film uh, called The Interview, uh, Seth Rogen and James Franco, where they were going to lampoon uh, Kim, Kim Jong-un uh, of North Korea. And um, this was basically uh, his way of getting back at it. Uh, getting back at them and uh, you know, it's a preemptive strike basically uh, the fact that Sony was hit 
um, it, to some extent, it seemed to be corporate culture that Sony was a bit complacent. They had been the target of hackers before on the Sony Entertainment side, on the PlayStation side. Uh, Sony PlayStation Network had been attacked a few times. And, and it, it's difficult to get a hold of these things because they're so big. There are millions and millions of users. And building robust systems at that scale as they grow older, as new security requirements come into play, uh, gets very difficult. But there were signs that Sony had been warned internally and hadn't picked up on the fact of it, that they'd had systems which had, which had failed, where security wasn't their first instinct when it came to building uh, new interfaces and new ways for people to interact with the system. And all the indications are that um, North Korea had a lot of determination to break in um, and that Sony really wasn't prepared for uh, you know, uh, someone who had so much enmity towards them. And they really didn't uh, consider this a uh, sufficient threat. So when you don't consider the threat correctly, if you don't actually evaluate your threats, then you're much more vulnerable. And that's definitely what happened in this case. I think one of my favorite quotes from the book uh, is that the November 2014 leak revealed a deep structural failure at Sony. Plain text passwords in files called passwords were the keys to the kingdom. And I think that's that's incredible. The the amount of research involved both first and second hand in this book is is great and it really helps tell the story. Do you think these are almost modern day parables for businesses? I guess you could say that. I mean, thank you about the research. Uh, it was it was really interesting finding people who would be prepared to talk about these things. So, you know, finding people who've been on Hillary Clinton's campaign, uh, who were willing to talk about, you know, what it was like when John Podesta was hacked. Uh, finding people who've been at Sony Pictures or who are at Sony Pictures uh, who are willing to talk about these things because it's really embarrassing. People get really embarrassed by the fact of being hacked. And you can sort of understand it because we think of these things as as personal to us and when it all gets exposed or in the case of ransomware when it gets locked up which is a really intriguing twist on hacking to me you know usually you think of hacking as uh, all your stuff is displayed to the world but the ransomware flips that over and makes it you know inaccessible to anyone including you as a modern day parable yeah there, there, there are ways in which they tell a story about things that we think are safe and actually are not safe and the ways that we can sort of fool ourselves into thinking everything's okay when actually it's really not okay. Um, and to the extent that parables tell you stories about the way you should treat the world rather than the way you'd like the world to treat you, yeah, I, I, I think that's there's a certain level of uh, truth in that. So with, with breaches happening, you know, Almost a, a couple of months at the the current rate, um, you know, all, all around the world, we, we see in, I, I think airlines are the most common. At the moment, at the moment, as we speak, airlines are. But. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. Uh, so what's the most interesting case recently that, you know, would potentially make you want to write a second book? Oh, definitely the most interesting case recently, you mentioned airlines, is uh, British Airways uh, announcing that uh, loads of its credit card, its customers' credit card details, names, addresses, you know, all sorts of details about them had been stolen by a group of hackers. And this uh, is a hacking group who are called, uh, I think it's pronounced Magecart, M-A-G-E-C-A-R-T. That's what they've been called by security companies. And, and no one quite knows where they're based. The suspicion tends to be East Europe, but no one's certain. And what they do is is really clever, is they uh, 
break into sites, but they don't steal stuff directly. What they do is upload a little piece of uh, their own code onto the site, and that code will get incorporated onto pages where there are credit card or similar transactions, and it will just send all those details. It'll send a copy of all the details to their own servers. And they look innocuous. If you sort of, in other words, are skimming the code, um, typically the bit of code, JavaScript, or it gets let, loaded in from a third party, not from a third party, but, but from another page on the same site. And that's what they did with British Airways. They broke into the luggage handling page and had a little bit of JavaScript, which then gets loaded onto the page where if you're buying a ticket, uh, you have to say how many bags are you going to be checking in, and uh, that piece of JavaScript sits with you and sits there, just waits for you to put your credit card details in, and then sends it off to them. They then get your credit card details along with all sorts of other information like your name, address, and your date of birth, uh, passport numbers, all those sorts of things, uh, possibly even your holiday details, I guess. Um, and you know they they have it to to monetize as they will. I think that uh, the exploitation these days of third-party add-ons is an exploding problem where you're getting combinatorial complexity. I mean, just on the day that we're recording this, um, it was announced that a Bitcoin exchange or a, a Bitcoin a payment system called BitPay had been hacked in a similar manner. It used um, you know, a piece of third-party code, JavaScript again, which had been altered at its repository so that uh, everyone who loaded it up was actually sending their Bitcoin to someone else. And this is the sort of thing, this interdependence that we are now seeing through the internet, the sort of principle that it's a bad idea to write the same code twice. That's true, but it's probably a bad idea also uh, just to load someone else's code from a site where you're not absolutely certain it's going to remain the same. Copy the code, fine. But I think that um, you know, just loading the code without uh, making absolutely certain it's right is, uh, is a really bad idea. I mean, Troy Hunt, who I know you've heard on the podcast before, has uh, spoken about this, talked about ways to get uh, or at least to protect yourself against it a bit. But I do think that there's a real... Um, coming problem, which is going to be exploited in a big way by hacking gangs uh, in the near future over this. Yeah, that that's that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm I'm kind of uh, you know quivering as someone who uh, you know works for a software company, but you know we we do go through massive amounts of, of checks ourselves with any third party software and code that we include. It's been great talking to you. Uh, thank you for joining us. It, it, if someone wanted to find out more about you, where might they go? Uh, well, if I want to buy the book, then uh, the place to go is koganpage.com. That's Kogan with a K, K-O-G-A-N, page.com. Um, and the, the book is available. Uh, it's cheaper on the on the Kogan page website than through sites such as Amazon, or you can buy it in physical form, uh, bookshops. Uh, if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm uh, at Charles Arthur and um, generally available. Uh, and uh, in real life, I don't know, I can sort of generally be found around the English countryside. <laughs> I, will, uh, I will include all those links. But uh, yeah, th- thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Cheers, guys. Wonderful, Charles. Have a good day. Well, Matt, that was an awesome interview uh, with Charles. <laughs> that dude, I just, I love it when you can interview someone and you ask them just a simple leading question and then they can just talk authoritatively for, you know, multiple minutes on, on the subject. That was, that was a really great, a really great interview. A nice, nice job bringing, bringing Charles in today. Thanks. Yeah. And we have a, a, a couple of guests lined up for the next few episodes. So every one of them, a British person. 
<laughs> well, good. I feel like that raises the quality just by sheer fact of them being British. Like it makes it'll make the podcast better. Yeah. So, you know, we've, we've got someone who is very well known in the security industry coming on. We've got someone who is uh, an actual practicing uh, defense against social engineering. Wow. Yeah, both of which I'm, I'm really excited about. Very nice. You know who we should have on is the queen. Can you get the queen on the podcast? I I doubt she has a password. <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? Like, I, I doubt if she doesn't carry, like, a wallet around with her because, like, she has no need for it. True. Yeah. She does, however, carry car keys, I've, uh, I've heard, because she does, you know, drive the old Land Rover around the estate kind of thing. Oh, of course. Yeah. She's got to go find her corgis. You know, they're off roaming the countryside. She's got to go bring them home. That's probably her password. Corgis are awesome. One, two, three. Oh, that, that would be sad. <laughs> that reminds me of our good, good pet, bad password uh, <laughs> thing. We should get we should get the Queen of England's corgis for good pet, bad password. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, Matt, do we have anything coming in from Twitter today? Any any ask one password hashtagged? Questions? So, yes, we have a question from Tofu Mac. Uh, Tofu Mac, he says, when giving a PDF app access to my cloud drive, for instance, uh, PDF expert, to make changes, etc., does that mean that they could potentially look through any of my documents stored there? This is a very, a very interesting question that I, I think has, um, it's, got a, it's got a lot of facets to it. You know, when you give an app access to another service, so for instance, PDF Expert can connect to Dropbox uh, to store PDFs there and, and, and access PDFs there. When you give an app access to, to another service, you basically have to assume that that app can then act on your behalf with that service. And a lot of times the services call out what type of access uh, different different apps will have. Um, I always look at that list very carefully. I that is one of those things that I never just blindly click through. You know, say next, yes, sure. Uh, I always take a look and see what exactly an app is asking to do with another service. There are many times when I just say, you know what, no, I'm not. I'm not comfortable giving this app this level of access to another account of mine in the case of pdf expert from our friends at, at rattle i'm sure that it's it's fine They're, you know this is, this is a trustworthy company and that that does come into it you know how much do you trust uh the manufacturer or the distributor uh the app maker of the app that you're using that that certainly comes into it whenever those dialogues come up I'm, i always take a moment and i'm like i i don't know so the answer to answer your question directly Yes, they they could potentially look through anything stored there. It's actually one of the nice things about the onepassword.com service is that the only apps that talk to the onepassword.com service are one password. So when you store stuff on our servers, there's no there's no apps that are going to be snooping around that information there. But yeah, Matt, do you, what do you what do you what do you think about this? Like what do you do when when an app comes up and says like can I have access to such and such? I mean, iOS handles it quite well when an app overextends its reach, and and I'd like to see that same sort of view taken with with apps that are looking for file system permissions and, and stuff like that. Like I remember when we changed, uh, well, when Dropbox changed on us from us needing to look at one folder to us looking needing to look at the whole Dropbox to find what we were searching for. 
which is you know the, the one password data folder sometimes it, it, it used to be in like the home of the, uh, the the root of the Dropbox and sometimes it was when they brought this forward slash apps forward slash one password thing in and uh, yeah people people were rightfully questioning us you know why why are you looking in the entirety of my Dropbox and uh, yeah I, I think we've got a bit of a way to go before we learn how to, to manage this correctly but in the time being I look at that list incredibly carefully and if I don't trust a company i don't let them have access to to that kind of file yeah you, you bring up a good point about dropbox in particular you know they've made this move to instead of letting apps access the entire dropbox drive i think that new apps that are signing up they're either defaulted to accessing just their directory there or maybe they've they've even set it so that they don't they are restricted from accessing uh the entirety of Dropbox. But, you know, it is it is up to the cloud service provider to also provide some protections there so that apps can't just go rogue and, and start start accessing everything uh, without without the proper permission. So it's it's not only are do you trust the apps, but also, you know, what what measure of protection are you getting from the cloud service provider that you're that you're dealing with? Yeah. So I, th- I think we uh, I think we pretty much answered the question of no, <laughs> you shouldn't trust them. And uh, yes, they can look through your stuff. So, uh, Rue, we have a, a place name this uh, this week, and it's from a listener. So, uh, Nathan Toon, he gave me the name, told me how to pronounce it, told me what it rhymes with, and I'm still not certain. <laughs> it's short, like I didn't, you know... Yeah, thank God. The the long ones are just ridiculous. I just need, I I I needed a breather, and this week is a breather, so I'm I'm happy about this. I mean, we're still both going to get it wrong. Oh yeah, absolutely. So this is a city in Utah. Apparently, Matt, I've been told that every time I give an enormous description about where the city name comes from, that it just gets cut from the pod. It ends it ends up on the cutting room floor. So I'm not even gonna I'm not gonna bother this time. Um, this is a city in Utah. It's very, it's, it's T-O-O-E-L-E, which is obviously, it's pronounced Thule, right? It's Thule. Thule, Utah. I, I, I think I'd go something similar, like, uh, yeah, 2L. Oh, all right, all right. 2L? I, I mean, maybe it's like, you know, French or something. Oh, 2L. Yes, of course. Yeah. From, from the French meaning, no, I don't, I got nothing. <laughs> From the French meaning tool. <laughs> yeah, tool. Apparently, uh, I've just looked it up on, on Wikipedia and they have a, a little like audio recording. Um, and uh, the the advice from Nathan was that it sounds like Godzilla. No, it doesn't. So it's it's Tuilla. Tuilla. Yeah. That's a good one. I like that. Yeah. I, I So, okay. We, I think that we should sort of ride on the coattails of ask one password. Uh, people should be, feel free to use the hashtag ask one password on Twitter to send us both questions that they'd like us to answer and also place names in the form of can you pronounce this place name and uh, we'll we'll do our best just because this is fun yeah we, we will double check that they're real place names and and not you know phonetically spelt bad words that we can then just repeat <laughs> nice all right Matt I think that that kind of brings us to a close for today love you Rue All right. Love you too, Matt.